everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Last week in part one, Jen Peoples, Phil Session, and I discussed post-election issues. This week, we continue the next hour of that discussion. We had another issue that was the concerns about the Senate majority that's in play here. So they held, the, the House was held under a Democrat majority, but now we've got a Senate where literally it has come down to two runoff races in Georgia. It just does not get any closer than this. So before we start that discussion, I just want to say that when I post this, I'm going to include a Act Blue link for donating to those Senate runoffs in Georgia. So if people want to support it, if you're not in Georgia and you can't vote in the runoffs, you might still want to send help. So there'll be a, a link that you can donate, or if you don't have the money to donate, you can share it. Just make sure to get the word out that these are important elections and people need to be ready to go to the wall because there are possible negative implications to winning the presidency and losing the Senate. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. I think, Phil, you wanted to talk some about HUD and homelessness. I just wanted to point out first that we have a situation where the cabinet nominees are going to go through the Senate. So if Biden wants to appoint cabinet nominees, they have to be confirmed through McConnell's Senate, and there could be some problems there. The issue that I have is that Trump has set a precedent of putting in acting temporary heads of these different departments. And as far as I'm concerned, I think it would be good if Biden wants to attempt a few to see how it goes, go ahead and put some appointees through to see if they get confirmed. And if he runs into trouble, I would say go with the precedent that the last administration set and put them in place. And let's just move on. There's no point fighting the Senate over that. There's other fights to be had. I think with the cabinet, there is a workaround if he's willing to do it. And I certainly would avail myself of that almost immediately. I would say, here's an opportunity to confirm a couple of appointees. You either do it or you don't. I'm not screwing around with this. We have other things to do and work to do. And if the appointees are going to be a problem, then I will just take them off the table, put them in place. They will be acting and I will just juggle them as needed. Or like Trump did, keep them in place even after it's not legal for them to be there. I mean, I don't know if I would go that route. I would probably still stick with within the law, but I would definitely not put up with any of the fuckery that the Senate might throw out there to try and just gum up the works. Nobody needs that right now. Things have to go forward. Give them an opportunity to work with you. If they won't, then just say, okay, I tried. It's off the table now. Let's look at something else. I will take care of my cabinet myself. And with that, you were talking about some concerns about HUD, I think, and or executive orders. Yeah, just kind of looking at you know, what would be that worst case scenario. So this is, you know, the runoffs in Georgia, you know, you're looking at Democrats, uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Those are the runoffs that are going to be happening. And that election date, I think it's January 5th, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's, it's you know, some time leading up there. So if you're in Georgia, make sure you're registered and all that other kind of good stuff. But it's a huge thing. So people may remember back to Obama's second term when the control of the republic of the senate was lost to republicans and you had mcconnell that was sitting right there to say we will not allow you know not one thing is going to get by not one thing is going to get by and using that power that the senate controls i mean your senate 
controls your judges that are confirmed. He held those up and then started throwing them in under Trump, getting all of these conservative justices in, which can affect our policies and laws for decades from different all kinds of levels of the federal judiciary system. But even if the worst case scenario, oh, <laughs> hard to think about, but it is, where if these two, they, they lose their uh, races and it stays in Republican control. And that's, you know, maybe 52-48, maybe 51-49 majority, Republicans, something like that. But even within that, the executive branch, as we've seen, as Trump has done so many of these actions, there's a lot of control of how they can enforce laws. And so when you look at like the border, for example, you had Jeff Sessions sitting right there talking about, this is how we're going to interpret the law. This is how we're going to enact these laws. So the Customs and Border Patrol, how they receive people that are coming and looking for asylum, there's nothing that dictates that, oh, well, you need to lock them up. We separate the children. Uh, we need to separate them right now, put them over here into this private camp that's engorging this private camp holder, you know, whatever private prison system that is. These were choices that were made on an administrative level by the executive branch. And so even in a loss of the Senate, Biden and his administration, whether they're acting officials, you know, acting attorney generals, whatever <laughs> it is, you know, regardless of what they are, they can start making changes that can affect millions of lives around. And the border is just one prime example. That was one of the big stories. I mean, it still is a big story, but it's fallen off of radars for a lot of people because it's not as in your face as it used to be. Children in cages, the whole nine yards. Right. But that was their choice that, that, that they made, not a legislative choice, but an administrative choice by the executive branch and the attorney general's office to say, this is how we're going to treat them. Just to help make it a little more clear to folks who might have trouble understanding what you're saying, because some people will say that was the law. That was the law under Obama. It was the same law, right? I mean, it's the same law. So why are you freaking out now just because Trump is, is uh, enforcing it? And it's like you're saying, it's about how it's enforced. There is a distinction. One way to think of it in terms of a less complex system is you get stopped by a cop for speeding. Sometimes you get a ticket. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get a warning. Or the cop stops you because you have a tail light that's out and you say, I didn't, I didn't know it was out. Thank you for telling me. I'll get it fixed. And the cop gives you a little citation. He says, okay, this is fine. If you get it fixed before this date, just let the, you know, let the courts know and, and you're fine. Or they'll just say, that's okay. Just take care of it. Have a nice day. Let you go. So there's a lot of ways the cop can handle it. He can give you a ticket for the tail light that's out. He can give you a ticket for speeding, but he doesn't have to. It's not a requirement that he do it. And it's not considered a dereliction for him to use his judgment and say, just be more careful, go on your way. The cop has that discretion, is allowed that discretion. What Trump's policy was, what his AG enacted was saying, from now on, anybody who stopped gets a ticket. If you're stopped for speeding, you get a ticket. If you're stopped for a taillight, you get a ticket. We're taking that discretion out of the hands of the police. He doesn't get to decide whether or not to let you go, whether or not it was a problem, whether, you, you know, there's, there is no context that we're going to consider anymore. Everybody gets a ticket across the board. You have the same law. Nothing has changed about the law. 
It's just about now you have no flexibility for using discretion about who should or shouldn't get a ticket, you know, and there might be times when that works to, uh, you know, a good advantage that it makes it more fair because everyone's getting a ticket. But it can also be a problem because there might be times when you don't think somebody should get a ticket when you don't. And so and when you're saying about taking children away, you have a situation where if you come across the border and you've got a child with you and you also have a bag of cocaine that you're smuggling in, I might say, we're going to take that child away. We need to find other accommodations for this child because you're not just a person coming in here to get you, know, you and your family in here, but you're a drug smuggler. When you say everybody, then you get somebody that comes across and they're just like, look, I'm just here to seek asylum. I've got my kid with me. I don't want any trouble. I look, I just want a better life. And you're just like, no, we're taking your kid away because that's the law. Take your kid away. We have that yeah. right. And so we're going to do it. You sometimes have to use discretion because there's a context involved with what's going on. It's not just about a law is or isn't broken. There's situational influences that can make an impact on how somebody is judging this in the moment. Mm -hmm. And usually we want people who have the capacity to have good judgment, who are making those decisions so that you don't have horrible negative biases driving it. You don't want racist cops making the judgment about who gets a ticket and who doesn't. What you want is a fair cop who's going to make a decision about who gets a ticket and who doesn't get a ticket. And that's hopefully what you would do in the situation with immigration is have people in place who are capable of making good judgments. Even the judges in the courts and the immigration courts are, are complaining, right? Because they're just basically being shoved through. People cases are being shoved through. They're not getting a fair hearing. These are people's lives at stake. These are lives and families. These are people putting everything on the line to come here and make their case, and they are not being given a fair hearing. And I think everybody is suffering here. The advocates that are down at the border are complaining. The judges that are down at the border are complaining. The immigration courts are not run like other courts. Mm-hmm. And those judges can get, are given, being given quotas and things. Like, I'm hearing all kinds of awful stuff about what's happening with those courts. But you don't have to necessarily change the law in order to figure out how you're going to deal with the law as a policy. It's two different questions. And right now, the way we're dealing, I mean, immigration has always been a nightmare in this country. I almost can't even say that without going back to the idea that people who basically invaded and colonized and committed mass atrocities to the indigenous populations are now putting up walls and saying, we're going to restrict who can come in. Like we're the ones that have to be afraid. And so we're looking at a situation where we're putting up all these blockers. And and the weirder thing is it's blockers for indigenous people coming from other parts of the Americas, right? So we're literally putting up borders to keep out indigenous people from coming to the north part of the continent. I can't, the absurdity of it just kind of, it, it just sort of breaks my brain when I start thinking about what we're doing here. I know. And they're like, no, I just want to visit my cousin. <laughs> yes. It's very, it's very weird. Since, since we are doing immigration, whether rightly or wrongly, we do it very badly. The U.S. has never been really good at immigration. We haven't ever really gotten it right. So there's not like, it's not like there was this heyday of fantastic immigration policy that we can go back to and say, if only it could be like that again. It's never been great. Right. But it has been worse. <laughs> at other times. And so this is right where we're at now is pretty bad. 
And a lot of that, uh, as you said, has, it, it has a lot to do with what the executive branch, how they interpret the law and how they apply that law to those individuals. And one of the examples that, you know, I focus on just in, in my work with Austin Atheists Helping the Homeless, you know, being in that arena for so long. So there was an act passed, this was back in 2015. So this was during Obama's term. It's called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Act. There was still a lot of disparity around the country, even in those that received services from providers, uh, from those that service people that are experiencing homelessness. There are a lot of disparities in how that assistance was being given out, essentially gender components, gender orientation, uh, sexual identity. Uh, there was a lot, get, I'm getting my words mixed up, sexual orientation. There was a lot of factors that were there that were concerning because some people were getting underserved just because you may have a provider that may not agree with them or that there's a multitude of factors. So I won't simplify it, but that was what this act was brought forth to address. And so it essentially required that local communities that are receiving federal housing and urban development dollars, because they give out millions to individual communities like Travis County, I think got a little over between 10 and $12 million in this year. Like they're still getting it right now for providers that are providing services to those experiencing homelessness. So for those communities, they would have to make a concrete data and community member driven plan to foster thriving communities within that continuum of care. That's what it's called, like the area of which it serves. And so this included data of tracking who was being served, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at the factors such as race, uh, your gender identity. If it's a victim of domestic violence, youth homelessness, veteran homelessness, disability homelessness, looking at those trends, who's being served, in what way, how are they escaping homelessness? What are the success rates of people that are escaping homelessness and don't fall back into it? And those types of numbers are tracked. And so it was an an entire plan to say that you cannot ignore these pieces just because you don't want to deal with it. Everybody needs to be at the table to talk together about what is going on in the community, what things are working, what things are not, et cetera, so that everyone, including the people that are getting, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to solve this problem, even they need to be at the table so they can know from advocates in that com- the homeless community. So for Travis County, for example, there's the, the Youth Homeless Collective, there's the Homeless Advocacy Group that's there. These are people that have experienced homelessness or are currently experiencing homelessness, they get to sit at the table with everybody else, the VA, everybody, these are all the big people to say, these are the issues that are there. This is what's happening. And that's why these folks are not getting help. That type of thing. That's what this rule was encouraging to make sure everybody is on the same accord and they're actually trying to solve the problems that people are facing rather than leaving people in the dust and focusing on a particular subset of individuals to the detriment of others that really need assistance. Under, this is under Carson. Oh my goodness, Ben Carson. Ben Carson, yeah. Yes, who leads the federal uh, housing and urban development. Well, they didn't like this rule too much, even though they couldn't change the law. They couldn't do anything about that. But what they could do is say, 
well, we'll delay the timeline as to when this thing should take effect. We're going to delay when these communities need to have this plan driven together in a quote coming from directly from federal HUD. This is one of their press releases okay. that they, uh, that they released. They said, quote, that this program is a waste of time. Like this, that's the way they said that they want to put control over the providers of homelessness into the local control there at the local level. The, but the fact is it already is in their control. What it's doing is making sure that everybody in that local continuum of care is working together to address the problems of disparity, even in regards to providing assistance to those experiencing homelessness, because there's a large divide there. Austin is made up of uh, eight to 10% African-Americans and yet has 35% uh, at the last time that I looked at the figures, 35% of people experiencing homelessness in Travis County are African-American, right. for example, which is a huge, uh, a huge gap and right, a right. huge underserving of that population and something that if we don't address it, we need to address what's going on at, in this particular region. And so that was a policy that Carson put down and that filtered out to all of the HUD recipients of funds. When we're talking about the changes that can be made on the executive branch, even without this, without the help of the Senate passing a law to correct this or whatever else, who's in those positions? Who's leading these particular departments? The Department of Education and Betsy DeVos. You have all of these different positions that are sitting here that have can have huge effects on people's lives in the local communities around the U.S. It is a huge issue, let alone the Secretary of State that interacts with other countries and our foreign policy that's dictated through that office. And so even without the Senate majority, even if we lose that, which I would hate, but it is, you know, it is a potential thing coming down the line. Biden, if he comes in like a effing wrecking ball and says, okay, we're putting people in, you can, as Tracy said, you can either put them in or they're going to be acting people for a long time. (laughs) acting secretaries left and right, whatever, but they can make such huge changes that affect your life, like your lives in your local community. It has a huge effect. And a lot of, not a lot of people are cognizant of that. This uh, having all branches would be nice. Well, at least the legislative and executive branch would be nice, but even if not, you can still push and advocate for uh, changes at the executive level so that these particular cabinet positions and secretary positions and all these administrators that actually do affect your lives in some way can be filled and changed in ways that for the betterment of your community. Right. So never discount the power that comes in that side. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, wait, what was that third branch of government again? We got three branches, right? What was that? So we've got the judiciary. Yes. And we need to remember that what we haven't seen so far is what the impact is going to be of the 200 conservative judges that were installed with McConnell and our new Supreme Court. So even if we take the Senate and even if we get a president that will issue executive orders or new policies, all we need is like a litigious side of the conservative ranks to challenge a lot of what can be done to see what happens through these conservative courts. 
So we haven't seen yet what that's going to mean because that's part of like uh, Obama did a lot through executive order in his second term when he just saw that there was no, there was not going to be any getting anything through Congress. Part of what the result of that is, is now we're looking at ACA getting sued, right? People are suing ACA and what's going to stand and what's going to fall. What, what's what's going to happen to it? What's going to happen to healthcare now? What little strides that he was able to legislate with a pen, basically, what's going to happen to that now that the courts are now filled with a judiciary that isn't probably going to be real supportive of liberal policy. I was reading something recently where someone was saying that because of the pandemic, Biden actually will have the ability to essentially put anyone who wants to be on Medicare or Medicaid to cover their expenses during the pandemic. That is something that's interesting to me. You know, if if, uh, the ACA falls, okay, hey, let's do this. And it would be interesting if people find out that, that they like public health especially in times of, you know, a pandemic, what would that do for support for the uh, universal you know, single-payer coverage in this country? Which I remind people we could have had during the first Clinton administration if Republicans hadn't been so opposed to it, the you know, health care plan that Hillary Clinton came up with as first lady. And, uh, of course, there were Democrats who were quite squeamish about pushing forward with that as well. I mean, even in... Obama's first term where there was a supermajority in yeah. the Senate of Democrats like that, like that was the time. Yeah. Like, if you're going to do it, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. It's just like, what, like mm-hmm. what the heck have, but yeah, but since all of these changes in the course, like people like project, it used to be called project uh, blitz from what I'm reading now, they've renamed themselves to freedom for all. Oh, they rebranded. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yes, yes. I guess freedom project blitz all. got too infamous. <laughs> Oh my goodness. But like that, that was a group that like, they just, they just printed out legislation and could give it to state legislatures to say, Hey, pass this, you know? And as long as you were in a conservative legislature, you know, in both houses, get it passed, even though you knew it's going to be knocked down, it would be challenged of course, in the courts, which is what they ultimately want. So it can pass through federal judgeships for the off chance that a judge would say, you know what? I have no problem with this law. This is this one is good to go. And it gets challenged again. And if it makes it to the Supreme Court, now you have Barrett that's on the Supreme Court. You have the 6-3 conservative majority that's happening. What happens if one of these Project Blitz, well, excuse me, Freedom for All bill, excuse me, uh, comes, comes before them that says, well, a business owner should have the religious freedom, should have the religious freedom to deny this service to this individual because that individual conflicts with a truly and sincerely held religious belief by the owners thereof. And even though, you know, in Barrett's like, I mean, every justice that gets confirmed, they always say, you know, I'm non-judgmental, you know, I can't make decisions. It's the usual refrain that you hear, of course. But what happens if they say, you know what, I like that. And that doesn't infringe on, that doesn't conflict with, uh, the title rights of the non-discrimination. Oh my goodness, it was a Title Seven, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. uh, which is discrimination based on gender orientation. Now, which was one of the newer reinterpretations. Was that was that just this year, or just this year that that case came before about uh, it was pretty being denied? Recent. Yeah, transgender. I think it was a, it was a transgender individual, and I thought 
there was also another one, uh, somebody that got fired or let go because uh, their employer found out that they were gay. Right. And th- that was considered discrimination right. based on gender, not necessarily of the person, but of the individual uh, right. that the they que- were attracted I think to the or with. The question was about, um, I think it's in, in the in the law, I think it's stated as sex. And, and so what those cases were mm-hmm. dealing with was the idea of, you know, is that encompassing of like gender or orientation? And what they, I think what they found was, yes, that that should be included. And so it's, it's like a weird wow. way of sort of extending an umbrella protection to groups whose protections were questioned by people who were saying, well, if I discriminate against you because you're gay, that's not discrimination based on sex. And what these cases were saying is, yes, it is. Because if you fire a man who's married to a man, but you would not fire a woman who's married to a man, then that's discrimination based on sex. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Which was the same justification in Obergefell in 2015. Right. Uh, but it was that was specifically talking about marriage in particular. And this was your job discrimination that was coming to the forefront. But there's nothing that's stopping this conservative-leaning 6-3 majority, as I'll say that again, to say that, you know what, no, that doesn't. Uh, we're going to go ahead and overturn this. That doesn't infringe on anyone's right. They're free to go to another bakery. You know, mm-hmm. they're free to go to another establishment. Like, there's nothing preventing them from getting this service taken care of at another reasonable, accommodated place within their particular city or whatever else. And it's like this looming fear that's sitting in the background about what's going to be brought before the Supreme Court and what might they overturn now that they have this majority that's there. And so that is going to be a scary thing to just kind of watch. And that's all that can really happen right now is just watching to see what they ended up uh, end up doing. Like putting more justices on the court is one thing, but I think that's going to be a long shot. Like there, there's a lot of there's some discord even within the Democratic Party about what the best solution and way forward is. But there's a lot of ways it could be restructured, though. I remember um, when Pete Buttigieg was running, he talked about wanting to restructure the courts, and this was before it even became as hot then like it what did after the uh, death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He was doing this during the primaries and saying that we need to redo it, that the court has become too politicized. And so he had a plan where he was saying we need, what we need is a split where we've got five that are conservative leaning, five that are liberal leaning, and then five that are jointly chosen. And so he wanted to have it to where it would be less partisan. Now, that was just his initial kind of thought, but I'm pretty sure that if we put our heads together, we could come up with a solution that says, here's a way to sort of deal with the partisanship that's, that's infected the judiciary at this point. It's, it's definitely there. Like, there's no getting around it. In, in the confirmation hearings, you always hear about, oh, well, they're trying to make this a partisan issue, and this is just, this is a, a well-oiled, you know, very competent individual. We're just trying to put them there. And it's just like, we all know, like, they didn't get there by accident. Like, they were chosen. They were chosen by the Federalist Society. Right. It's like the Federalist Society (laughs) is who is nominating our judges, basically. They hand the president, the conservative presidents, a list of this is who you choose from. The president picks, you know, one and throws it over to the Senate. There's some very interesting information about the Federalist Society. I'm trying to remember where I saw that. I'll have to try and look it up and see if I can find it. Someone had done some research into different conservative groups and how they were sort of juggling individuals back and forth and they're funneled full of dark money. 
so that you end up putting in, I think it was like $200 million or $250 million for the installation of Barrett. But, uh, uh, what I'm looking at right now, as far as donors, like you're looking at like, oh, family Mercer's. I do remember who it was. Now. It was mm-hmm. one of the, um, I think it was one of the senators actually at the hearings. I'm going to look Google that while <laughs> talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Did you have something to add to it, Jen? No, I was actually just pulled up Twitter to uh, <laughs> check on that million MAGA march. Again. Oh, good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, one of the signs, one of these jackasses carrying is saying, make America great again, ban homo marriage. Because <laughs> that's what messed it up. <laughs> yeah. There's another picture of the, the Blue Lives Matter flag flying uh, right next to the Nazi flag with the swastika. So, yeah, Kurt Eichenwald is saying, uh, he tweets, every one of you evil Republican, but judges and tax cuts, you will never be able to wipe the stink off of you. These are your allies. These are you. Whether you want to admit it or not, you are no different than the Germans who supported Hitler for financial benefit. I, I was able to find the senator. Just let me interject here for one second. I was able to find it was Senator Whitehouse, and he did a presentation that was excellent. He, he knew he couldn't stop the nomination, but he went ahead and just did a presentation on this is how judges like Barrett and specifically Barrett have been nominated. And this is the problem with it. I'm going to include a link to uh, the video presentation that he did because it was really awesome explanation of how dark money is fueling the SCOTUS nominations, at least from the Federalist Society side. What's funny about the like just the march and looking out there like I remember like when Trump got elected and uh, the women's march and you can look it up uh, on Wikipedia like the 2017 women's march that was there but in the U.S. The, it was estimated between 3.2 and 5.2 million people across the U.S. and like Washington alone was 470 thousand people in Washington after. Trump got elected. You know, the the largest was it was one of the largest worldwide protests still on record, if I'm not mistaken. But Trump's uh, sent out a tweet saying something along the lines of hundreds of thousands have come out or something like that. And it it was more along the lines, it was like tens of thousands, something like that. But it doesn't seem to be like a concrete number as of yet, but it definitely is dwarfed by pictures I'm seeing just of the women's march. And I've forgotten how large that march really was when yeah. and I, Trump and I won. It was like, I want to tweet back at him, dude, they rang the church bells in Paris when you lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, we had overthrown a dictator. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so funny, like, just thinking about how outside countries are looking at the U.S., everything that's happened here, like, like what, what could you possibly think? Like, I just, it's hard for me to put myself in their shoes. Like, I mean, I see, of course, comedy stories, like little things on YouTube or something like that coming from their perspective, but yeah. to actually watch it from another country, but like, this is real. Like yeah. those people elected this, they put them there. <laughs> I, I've seen so many mixed responses to this 2020 election, right? So from people congratulating us and saying they knew we could do it, 
to people who have written and said, I'm really pissed off. Don't ever do that to us again. Like as far as the last four years, like don't, don't you ever do that to the globe again. One thing I will say is not in the Trumpian, you have to shoulder your fair share way, but in a cautionary tale way, I hope that the rest of the globe has learned not to rely on the U.S. so heavily. I really do like, of course, as someone living in the U.S., it's to my benefit that our country be involved globally as much as possible. I want as much political influence as we can wield um, legally and ethically in communities. I want us to be in deals with nuclear arms. I want us to be in things that affect the environment. I want us to be included in those discussions and participants in those discussions and supportive of positive global policy. I know that we don't always live up to the best standards, and sometimes global influence can be a negative thing. But when you live in a country, you want that country to be involved in as much as possible with other countries in a global community. You don't want to be left out of those conversations and disempowered and disenfranchised. Everybody should be included in participating and be a partner in these things with good intentions. You want good actors making good decisions about everyone's welfare. At the same time, though, apparently things can go wrong with us. And when that happens, if we are a global leader who is shouldering, when when we're the ones that are sort of carrying most of that burden, what happens when we fall? And that's something that I think other countries had, had, had to really seriously think about in the last four years. And I hope that it They don't look at this as like a blip on the radar and now we can go back to business as usual. I really want to see other countries step up and assert themselves and assert their power and own some of this, again, not in a way that I feel like the U.S. has been treated unfairly, but I feel like that we may have created an environment of disenfranchisement and complacent attitudes among other nations who felt like we would always be there. And now as a U.S. citizen, I don't feel like we can be trusted to be there like we need to be there. And I really hope that other countries will form coalitions. I understand some of them are smaller. They have smaller budgets, smaller militaries. And that's why something like the EU is really important. Those nations have to find a way to come together and have a coalition and make themselves empowered by numbers, if nothing else. Because there has to be, there, there can't just be one, one nation setting policy. It has to be a community setting policy. And our neighbors and our allies need to be empowered to do that. I hope they take this uh, last four years as a cautionary tale and find a way to sort of have a backup plan in case things go south here. And that's one of the reasons why alliances like NATO are so vitally important, because you do have a coalition of nations who basically are saying, hey, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. We're all on the same team. But yeah, I I get what you're saying. It's almost like the world has been in a codependent relationship with us for a long time, and suddenly all the pretense of that fell away in the last four years, and people have had to, like, step up and kind of handle their own shit a little bit because we cannot be counted on to do that. Yeah. And I think the United States, you know, because of its size and resource, there is something to be said about the idea of us playing a stewardship role 
taking on obligation and responsibility because of our size and because of our capacity for influence. I think we have, what is that, that Spider-Man quote, like with great yeah, power comes great responsibility. And so we have to be responsible with how we wield our power. Uh, and I'm definitely the, you know, willing to admit that we don't always do that. And even with a group like NATO, you can have problems, right? It's, it's not ever going to be a perfect system that doesn't mean that it's a useless system or that it's a system that needs to be abandoned. It just means that you can improve on it and make things better. And we in the United States need to do what we can in the times that we're able to help empower other countries to take more control of their own destinies, to not be as reliant on us, not for our benefit, but for their own benefit. I'm sure it's a very rude awakening just after all these things and Trump going to summit meetings and snubbing some folks and cozying up to whether it be Putin or Kim Jong-il, like just all kinds of things. It's just like, what are you even, what are you even doing? And so I, I hope that people don't see Biden. Like, cause, cause a lot of people on the news, what the way that I have been watching on MSNBC, MSNBC and CNN and stuff like that, it's, definitely the sigh of relief and an interpretation of a return, a return to normalcy, I think. And I'm, I would hope that other countries kind of would learn their lesson because this, this has been such a tumultuous four years that how could you not have started to adapt things or hopefully they weren't just relying on my goodness. I hope they voted not the next right. time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. But for Merkel and everybody else, I, I would hope not. I would hope that they would take some role or at least want to work with Biden more. I'm sure they'll reest- want to reestablish those connections, of course, because they used to be there before Trump was just like, oh, to hell with that. No, I don't want that either. And yeah. just brazenly in that way. But I hope that they would get some more in- independence between the UK, even Canada and Justin. Uh, <laughs> up yeah. there. I'm saying Justin, like I really know this man. Oh my goodness. Trudeau up there. Uh, well, well I, I, I think they really do. Earlier, you were talking about this idea that was reminding me of like a free fall. You were saying, you know, where does this end? And we were seeing all these different crises that were arising daily or weekly or, you know, several times a day of some new wild thing that we were just like, our heads were spinning with all of the bizarro world stuff that was going on in the last four years. When you were talking about it, I was envisioning somebody free falling down a pit, right? Like you're falling down this pit and you're wondering where the bottom, you know, you were saying, where's the bottom? Where does this end? Where does this stop? And so you're falling and falling and falling. And then finally you manage to grab onto a limb or hit a ledge or something. And it's like, okay, I've stopped. I've stopped the fall. And then you kind of have to get your head on straight and recognize what just happened and what your situation is. And you have to get your bearings, right? Okay, so I'm down this pit now and I'm standing on this ledge. And so plan B is, or or the next phase is, how do I get back up? How do I get out of this pit? How do I get back up to the top? And we are at such a deficit now. A lot of the things that Trump manifested in the population was the the horrifying level of racism and misogyny and 
the bigotry against so many marginalized demographics that just came out in full force that people just felt so empowered to express and to act on and to the videos alone of just the entitlement and the hostility toward groups. This was in the population and now it's activated in the population and we got to see it. So this wasn't a situation where we fell from a starting point of utopia. We fell from a starting point of a heavily bigoted society where bigots were just a little quieter than they are four years later. And so when we think about a return to normalcy, it's kind of crappy because now we have to work just to get back to where we started, which wasn't utopian to begin with. And then we have to work to try to improve it with all of the same obstructions that we were confronted with before Trump took office. You know, all of those obstructions that Obama had to work around constantly are still in play and it's not going to be pretty. And this is why the Senate is so important. And this is why a restructure of the judiciary is so important because right now, we have forces that are obstructing that are very, very much on the side of bigotry and oppression and suppression and regressive concepts of bringing us back to the racism and the misogyny that we lived in you know, 50 years ago. They want to go right back to that. They see that as the ideal in the United States is the 1950s and the 1940s. So when I look at this, it's sad that we think in terms of a return to normalcy, but I think we do because it would be a relief almost just to get back to that. But I want to assure people that even while we're kind of expressing that in a, with a sense of relief, just knowing that we have an opportunity now to get back to quote normal, that doesn't mean that normal is the goal. It doesn't mean that where we were before Trump got elected was perfect and that's what we want to get back to and that's the ideal and that's where the end is. It's still a lot of work to climb back up out of that hole and then once we get to the top again, we still have to find our way out of that cave. We're still in a mess and we still have to fix it and I don't want folks to think that the point of what we're discussing here is hey, let's all celebrate. It's all done now. Biden got elected and everything's perfect again. And so now we can just like all breathe a sigh of relief and just go back to sleep. It can't be that way. We have to stay active, keep being active. It's never been so important for all of these people that have now gotten up and made their voices heard in these elections to keep making their voices heard. If you send people to Washington and they're sitting there saying, I am I am expressing the will of the people and I want this policy. If people won't stand up behind them and say, amen, then what you've got is a single person standing there claiming that they're speaking for a lot of people who are now being silent again. We have to have the backs of the people we sent to Washington. We have to have their ear. We have to stand up and make sure that everybody on both sides of the aisles knows what it is we want. Otherwise they're going to be ineffectual. It's people that power the representatives. And if the people don't show up to back them when they're trying to do what we want, it's going to look really thin and watery and it's not going to fly. So no sitting out the midterm. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Because you don't want to lose the house on top of of everything else. 
I mean, we lost seats in the House, and that's not a good message when we're out there trying to push a progressive you know, legislative agenda. Mm-hmm. People are always complaining about Pelosi, and she won't do this or she won't do that. Um, she's been pretty masterful at how she's handled herself through all this. If we want to her to like take up more progressive causes, we're going to have to give her the backing, and the backing is numbers right now. Yeah, we did not deliver that. Although I can say my statement that I make every two years, Boyd Doggett is still my congressman. So, <laughs> so fuck all y'all Republicans that tried to gerrymander him out of out of office. It didn't work. He's still my congressman. So. That's cool. All right. Well. I need to get going, guys. I got to get up at the crack of dawn and run. Okay. Oh, dear. I get to sleep in. <laughs> That's what I always get to say. We do these on Saturdays, and I'm like, I'm sleeping in. We do sleep in on Sundays, so we, we don't get up until 4, and we don't run until 5. So Tuesdays and Thursdays, we get up at 3.30 and run at 4.30, so... So Sundays are our sleep-in days. Yeah. Now, to be honest, I'm going to be up really early doing my walk and feeding my cats. That's it's a it's a fantasy that I sleep in really more than anything. What I did do is I did do my eight-week blood donation down at the Blood and Tissue Center, and I'm That's super cool. psyched because now I have 2,500 points as soon as they register these 250 points from this <laughs> last donation, and that means I get the backpack. So I get the We Are Blood branded backpack. I'm so excited. I've been saving points. Every eight weeks, 250 points, and I'm going to have the 2,500 points. So that's like, that's a lot of weeks. That's a lot of donations. But I want that backpack. Come for the service to humanity. Stay for the merch. Yeah. So um, my wife recently donated blood and found out that as part of the blood donations now, they're doing COVID-19 testing. Yes, they have that on their website. Oh, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, so it does. <laughs> it yeah, totally it, does. It, it's an antibody test, and so um, she's negative for antibodies. She was bummed because she's like, I was kind of hoping I'd already had it, you know? Yeah, I think I would know if I had I don't think I'd be one of those people that's just like, oh, I wonder if this is COVID. I think I would just be like, I'm dying. Yeah, um, I don't think I would do well. Before I bail, I wanted to like throw out another little cool tidbit. Um, I was just reading an article that that said that a lot of breeders and shelters have noted noted an uptick in the number of dogs that have been adopted during the pandemic who are named mm-hmm. Fauci. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. That's. I thought I thought the uplifting thing was just like the adoptions had gone up. I yeah, was not expecting people the Fauci side. <laughs> well, before you leave, I want to say thank you to both of you. So thank you, Jen, and thank you, Phil, for coming on and just sharing your thoughts. It's always great to to hook up and talk to you about issues. I know. I am so looking forward to this pandemic being open or uh, over, so I can oh, yeah. go, you know, sit face to face with you guys. We can have coffee again and, and you know talk. i'm devastated about not having my holiday party like there's a there's a oh, chunk of nice. my brain there's a chunk of my brain that is like build the fire and just have everyone distance and be outside 
right? Like do the whole thing outside. And then there's a part of my brain that's like, just forget it. It's one year. Don't do it. Just let it go. I know. I keep, I keep trying to figure out how can I do some kind of appropriately socially distanced thing at the house, you know, that I can have people over, but it, I just can't in good conscience do it. I, I, I know that people would have to come in and use the restroom. I know that and it's like, no matter how careful you try to be, you just don't know. And you know, it's like, there's a lot of people that come to that party some years and I just, I'm like, I'm just going to have to send a note and tell folks that what I was thinking of doing is maybe setting up a page or a site or something where people can interact like yeah. show their houses, like share pictures of their Christmas or share, you know, what they got or whatnot. So I don't know, maybe I'll do a thing like that with a closed group or something mm-hmm. with the folks I normally have over. Yeah. I do, do like a, a huge zoom meeting or something. I don't know. There you go. You going to host my holiday party? <laughs> on zoom? Like, I, I'll send you a link. I got you. Oh God. I might do that. Okay. Phil. <laughs> yeah, I'm, gonna say I'm very serious about that. <laughs> I might hold you to that. That would be yeah. awesome to do something. We couldn't do the gift exchange, sadly. That's, That's true. True. <laughs> but we could, you know, we could we could have a drink and all hang out and chat for a little bit. All right. Well, I'd thank you. Down. Thank, thank you all for being on, and I really really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye, you guys. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.